And, uh, but once we actually explain, no, wait, we're not crazy. Aging is a biological phenomenon, and there are species that live much longer than humans, so there's nothing fundamental about our 80-year you know, time limit. So potentially it's just an engineering problem that we can at least increase it to something that is observed in other animals. Welcome to Live Longer World, a podcast where we unite to boost longevity and fight aging. All resources and premium member benefits are found at livelongerworld.com. Now, on to today's episode. My guest today is Yuri Dejan, who is the founder and CEO of Youth Biotherapeutics, a company that's working on epigenetic reprogramming or using the Yamanaka factors to achieve partial reprogramming. You've probably heard the term Yamanaka factors or partial reprogramming thrown around a lot recently because of Alto's lab and the funding in the space. But we really dive into it and talk about what is epigenetic reprogramming that turns the cell into a younger state, what are some of the risks associated with it in terms of cancer risk, and what are other open questions in the field. Yuri is also an advocate for the epigenetic theory of aging and has coined the strong epigenetic theory of aging, which we talk about. He is also a believer in cryonics, in fact, and we talk a bit about that too. You may in fact have heard of Yuri's name recently because he was one of the first people to talk and write publicly about the lab leak theory for COVID-19. So Yuri does have a very scientific, rational mind, which is why I had great fun chatting with him. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation as well. Hi, Yuri, and welcome to the Live Longer World podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, I'm very excited to talk to you. And I think particularly, Yuri, you're very outspoken and bold. Uh, I mean, of course, it comes across in you uncovering the lab leak theory, but we'll first oh, no. talk about longevity. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll keep it to longevity. Um, but you've spoken about, you know, how you want 100% life extension. And you've I've heard you speak about, you know, people sometimes in academia are okay with 10 to 20% life extension. And there's this missing sense of urgency in the field. Um, you want 100% wow. life extension, so do I. So what do you, why do you think there is this missing sense of urgency? Or maybe uh, what can be done to solve this problem? I see you've been kind of doing your background research. Uh, yeah, definitely hearing some of the things I've said in the past about the lack of, uh, yeah, sense of urgency in just kind of the academia of the aging research. And I think when I was kind of starting to, to say these things, it's, uh, we've made a lot of progress since then. I mean, because, yeah, probably like five, six years ago is when I was kind of complaining about the lack of sense of urgency. And since then, we had a lot of... Uh, I think investment come into the space and it's generate I, I think it's generating a lot more urgency in the, the people who are being uh, kind of hired by kind of people who, who want to see a much higher sense of urgency and they're essentially giving them all the tools that they need to go as deep as they need into the science and, and generate uh, first hypotheses and hopefully they'll translate into therapies that will give us something. Well, if not 100% at this point, maybe 20, 30% in a very uh, you know, short future. And um, 
especially, yeah, like the 10, 15% that we see in animal models of life extension that get a lot of play in academic circles, in conferences. I, I think for our purposes, for purposes of, you know, human life extension, they're nowhere near enough that, that we need to have human, even humans live 10, 15% longer because, you know, 10, 15% in mice is, is really not translatable into 10, 15% of humans. Like we have, I think my biggest kind of example of this is caloric restriction, which in mice can give you up to 50% life extension. But when mm. they tried it in primates, in, in macaques, that only translated into like 5%, 10% lifespan increase. And it was, you know, gender or sex specific. So males didn't really get a lot of life extension. Females did. But for that, they needed to be like starved two thirds of their lives. And it, so like you can see like 50% from mice get decreased into like just five to 10% in humans. So we really need to see big, big breakthroughs in animals, like large increases in lifespan to be able to be confident that it'll translate into something meaningful in, in us. And in fact, that starvation also, it comes with its own downsides where you lose all your muscle and you become frail, and that's exactly the opposite of what you want. Yeah, it's not a very enjoyable life. <laughs> you, don't, you might not want to extend it <laughs> very much if you're actually like starving to, yeah, for most of your life. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's quite exciting that there is so much more money that's come into the field, that people are becoming more aware of it. Um, and on that point of awareness, you, in fact, did work in advocacy for aging for a long time or just activism before you, you know, started your company. Um, and you've written some amazing blog pieces as well on your medium. So I'm curious, when you were uh, involved more on the awareness side, are there certain explanations that you think worked uh, in terms of convincing people or informing them more about this space? And on the flip side, maybe some explanations that just don't work and don't resonate with people. Right. I, I think it just takes a lot of patience. Like this patience, that's what I learned that, you know, you can't convince people quickly. And the first time you're going to tell them something that, you know, less extend lifespan, they're probably going to recoil and say, let's not. They're going to say, right. it's going to cause overpopulation or, you know, death gives meaning to life or some other, you know, excuse that we usually hear when people say they don't want to extend lifespan. So, but I think, you know, if they actually are given an opportunity to kind of think about it, you know, in, in privacy and without any kind of pressure on them to kind of stand their ground, they'll gradually come to the realization that, you know, it's actually not a bad thing. There's nothing bad about being healthier for longer or living longer as long as you know you want to do it so um and essentially i think we have to raise awareness of that it's not just possible to extend lifespan because many people just think you know it's impossible uh, they they kind of have this learned helplessness from very early age that aging is just some fundamental law of nature and for some reason humans have to die at 80 years old and that's kind of ingrained in our culture and everything else and we kind of take it as a given and when someone tells us otherwise we tend to dismiss them as you know someone crazy or something because you know it contradicts our beliefs and uh, but once we actually explain 
no, wait, we're not crazy. Aging is a biological phenomenon, and there are species that live much longer than humans, so there's nothing fundamental about our 80-year you know, time limit. So potentially it's just an engineering problem that we can at least increase it to something that is observed in other animals or even mammals. You know, whales live 200 years, we're mammals. There's probably nothing fundamental why we cannot live at least as long or maybe even longer like sharks, you know, 400 years. So, and once I think you kind of plant the seeds and people, rational people, will, will let those kind of, those seeds grow into understanding a little bit that maybe the previous beliefs that we had culturally ingrained in ourselves are not really fundamental and were based on kind of the previous facts on the ground where at that point there was no genetic engineering, there was no biology, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago and aging was an immutable law. But now it's not the same, now the situation is different. So potentially we can do something about it and we just have to very quickly understand what exactly makes us age in the way that we do and live as long as we do it and change that biology and that kind of ties back into the sense of urgency we can take you know a few decades to do that and probably a lot of people won't be able to enjoy the fruits of that labor or we can do it very quickly and i think it's just a matter of how quickly the research can be done and for that i think we need a lot of people doing the research and that kind of ties back into the funding we need a lot of funding to fund these a lot of people doing the research and uh, I think, you know, ultimately this will, what will help uh, get us there. And once you kind of deliver this message to, to people, I think a lot of them will, will change their mind. And this is essentially, yeah, raising awareness that aging is not something untouchable. It's not something immutable. It's actually just a biological feature that we can uh, probably change. Not probably, yeah. that we can change. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's so interesting, right? When there's something that's so ingrained in human culture, we'll come up with all sorts of reasons to try to rationalize it in our head. And I think that flip too, when you think that something's uncontrollable, that you you just accept it and then you come up with different reasons where, you know, it's religion or it's leaving resources for the young or what have you. But then once you have that switch and flip where it's like, wait, it can be controlled. Why should I die if I don't want to die? Uh, I should die if I want to die, not not something that it's imposed absolutely. on me from external factors. Yeah, absolutely, and this is kind of what we're we're fighting against. Is is this our learned helplessness? Is it, I say a lot of times, but we just kind of get raised with this thought that we have to die, and we have to accept that we're dying, and and that we will die. And uh, I think, yeah, kind of the, the first step is to rebel against this and say, well, I don't want to, <laughs> and we should really do anything, everything possible that we can to give people the opportunity, at least to live longer, if not completely, you know, avoid death. Right. So how did you become aware of it? Because I know you have a background in mathematics, computer science, by just formal education, and then you did work um, in pharma and drug discovery in, in Russia for a bit. How did you come, come into the field of longevity? Right, yeah, exactly. After I kind of transitioned from the IT and, and a technical background into dark development, this is where I met a lot of people who are also in, into transhumanism, life extension, age, aging research in Russia. And I got kind of 
converted, or at least I was made aware. I, I went through all the same stages. You know, you first hear about <laughs> extending lifespan, and you go, "But what about our population?" And then you you start thinking about it, and then realize, "Yeah, there's nothing bad about extending lifespan." And just gotten kind of more and more interested about just the kind of the movement. And initially, it was more about like the activist side of things, and eventually. Uh, my drug development work gotten more and more intertwined in, with you know longevity research or fighting aging and uh, got interested in the actual a uh, science of aging and the fundamental reasons why we age and kind of went down the rabbit hole of trying to understand what are the fundamental mechanisms, what you know epigenetics of aging, and whether aging can be you know, epigenetically modulated, and ultimately. I guess serendipitously at the same time got uh, aware, became aware of partial reprogramming and the successes that partial reprogramming uh, saw in extending lifespan of at least progeric animals. And ultimately that led me to to want to you know, start a company to develop this paradigm into therapy. Initially because nobody else was doing it. And, but now it's kind of all the rage these days. And it seems everybody is having a, a lot of partially yeah. programming startup. Yeah, I think it was even a joke on Twitter. I think Nathan Chang was, was like joking about that maybe he should also start a partially programming startup. Of course, I think Altos is, is kind of driving a lot of hype around this, but right. it's a huge investment and heavyweights. You know, entering the ring, and uh, well, maybe Brian Armstrong as well with his new limit. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's great to see that you know, partial reprogramming is now getting a lot of attention, and hopefully, it won't kind of fall in the footsteps of all previous <laughs> paradigms, uh, and uh, will you know provide some meaningful life extension that we'll be able tra to translate to human life extension. But you know, we're still pretty early in that process. But I'm exactly. very optimistic. Yeah, yeah, 100%, very optimistic. And I'll, I'll come to partial reprogramming next, but just so there's some context. Um, you know, the epigenetic theory of aging, you're obviously a huge advocate for it. And you've written about, you know, your strong epigenetic theory of aging too. And you call, say, maybe Sinclair's informational theory <laughs> the more weak theory. What is what, what is the strong epigenetic theory of aging? Uh, I, I was just, yeah, kind of uh, trying to uh, uh, imitate physics with, you know, the strong and the weak theories yeah. but uh, yeah I, I think the kind of my vision is that epigenetics drives a lot of aging and I, I think aging is uh, not only is it biological adaptation which I think you know very few people would argue with me about that but it, it's actually a, you know a programmed process where species are programmed a certain kind of life history which includes a period of aging and there's a lot of like hair splitting going on, you know, is it the quasi program? Is it like the post reproductive stage? Is that programmed or is it like where the program ends and the, the, that post reproductive stage is where, you know, genes don't care about it? And it, it could be a, you know, hours long discussion about all, all the details of that. But to me, I, I think there's actually like all of the stages, all of the life history stages are, you know, epigenetically controlled. And I think they're pretty, you know, pretty tightly controlled, like the onset periods. Because, I mean, nobody will debate or will uh, disagree that, you know, puberty onset or embryogenesis stages are very, very tightly controlled and have very kind of precise time points where, you know, 
like embryogenesis is a very, very intricate and uh, precise moments. Puberty onset, you got a little variation. You get like maybe a year or two variation. And then, you know, you get a little bit of a dispersion on the actual like stages, you know, uh, in aging or development, uh, you know, post-reproductive onset and, and so on. But overall, you see a, a very, I think, pre a predetermined pattern of life history in, you know, in humans and other animals. And the actual timings are, are you know, pre the pretty tight range. So, and obviously, to me at least, the, they are epigenetically implemented. So it's epigenetics, which essentially kind of reprograms you from a, you know, uh, a pre prepubertant kid to an adolescent to, to an adult and to a post-reproductive uh, adult organism. And so I think, if we're actually able to, twenty percent. If we're actually able to uh, uh, figure out the epigenetic controls, we might be able to slow down these transitions, or even, you know, potentially maybe reverse them or roll them back at least a little bit. Like make your epigenetic pattern of gene expression in, you know, a lot of your tissues be a closer to a younger pattern of gene expression than to an older pattern of gene expression. It's essentially, hopefully, epigenetically decrease your biological age. And uh, so, yeah, basically, I think a there's a lot of agreement about the role of epigenetics, but there's some disagreement whether that kind of role of epigenetics is maybe stochastic, like it just happens like because of some stochastic damage or stochastic mechanism that epigenetics has to kind of react to them and this is why we see the epigenetic changes during aging and to me that's what i call kind of the weak epigenetic theory uh that you know epigenetics is reacting to maybe some dna damage which is kind of one of the i think one of the arguments of david sinclair and, and his group that i'm addressing in in that in that medium post that you're quoting but to me it's actually I think epigenetic changes are kind of happening by themselves. They're not a reaction to something. They're essentially an implementation of a life history pre-programmed for a given mm -hmm. organism with, you know, set time points that just, you know, take place because of that's how the organism is, is set up. So epigenetics, epigenetics is actually driving those changes. So I, I think I got a pretty long-winded explanation about uh, kind of my, my view about the uh, role of epigenetics. No, that is, that's actually quite interesting because when, when I was talking to uh, Dr. Morgan Levine too on her epigenetic clocks, in fact, she talks about methylation patterns. She, she noted that they're actually not as random as you would think. They're quite uh, predictable and they're, they're, they're quite distinct in, in their ways. And that's what surprised her that it, it's just not random. Like you, you can see set pattern, patterns too. Absolutely. And yeah, to me, this is one of the arguments for the strong epigenetic theory of aging, that there is this concept of epigenetic clocks, and there is a lot of um, similar changes between different humans, different mice of the same age that you actually can build a clock that will accurately tell you how old a, a given tissue is or, you know, how old of an animal it's coming from. And also that it's synchronized between different tissues with very kind of different dynamics. 
like there's slow dividing tissues, there's non-dividing tissues like neurons, there's fast dividing tissues like blood cells, and there's some universal methylation, uh, you know, CPGs or like, you know, uh, uh, I guess kind of the, the underlying mechanisms that are the same between those tissues that to me hint at some universal epigenetic process that is driven by aging or at least you know highly correlated and, and I think it's driven some people think it, it, it could be just reflective of something else some other underlying process but uh, yeah to me this this presence of epigenetic clocks is uh, I, I think is, is an argument for the program nature programmed epigenetic nature of, of aging yeah so so you spoke about partial reprogramming and maybe turning back this uh the epigenetics a little bit you started a company youth biotherapeutics uh based on that the yamana fa factors the oskm which is quite popular now as you said making the rounds uh can you maybe just explain what is epigenetic reprogramming or partial reprogramming sure yeah I, I, well, i'm sure most viewers <laughs> probably know by now but uh, basically we as, as a community, we were blessed with this miracle of, of Yamanaka factors that while they reprogram cells back to uh, embryonic-like state, also turns out that they are able to rejuvenate cells, physiologically rejuvenate cells in the process. And this is a miracle that we, I think, we, you know, we, we didn't have to be blessed with, but thankfully we are. And I think we're actually kind of stumbling on some of the life's fundamental mechanisms of rejuvenation which are probably only available to cells after fertilization to implement this born young kind of paradigm that you know every kind of old organism is able to produce a young organism only after reproduction um, and it seems that you know the yamanaka factors that were discovered are at least partially responsible for this this rejuvenation process that happens after fertilization or resetting of the age that happens after fertilization and after reprogramming which i think reprogramming kind of mimics the, the process of you know this wholesale reset epigenetic reset and also physiological reset that seems to be accompanying the the you know this reset and so Partial reprogramming paradigm arose when people started to, to experiment, like, can we get the benefits of this rejuvenation that we see in vitro, in a, you know, a Petri dish, can we do it in vivo, in an animal? Because, you know, you know, we are very selfish organisms. We actually want to be rejuvenated while we're adults, not for, our genes don't care about our rejuvenation. They just care that our progeny is rejuvenated, but we want to kind of get that a magical rejuvenation that is usually reserved just for our children we after you know the, uh, we produce the fertilized cell we want to try it in vivo and in vivo they obviously we can't do full reprogramming because our cells will stop being functionally you know the, the cell types that basically make us alive and function and if they stop being a skin cell, if they stop being a neuron and they go back to embryonic-like state, the essentially will stop functioning and die very quickly. But it, the partial reprogramming observation was made that what if we can actually just do a little bit of reprogramming without letting a cell lose its identity, but hopefully get the benefits of rejuvenation, like a little bit of rejuvenation that 
could be happening during reprogramming. And this was one of the observation that, observations that was made initially that, you know, reprogramming and rejuvenation are gradual processes. So theoretically, we could find this kind of narrow therapeutic window, this Goldilocks zone, where the cell is still the same functional cell that is starting the re reprogramming process, but it's already kind of a little bit more rejuvenated than when it started. So this is the essentially the, the uh, underpinnings of partial reprogramming, where we try to get the, the kind of the best of both worlds with rejuvenation, but without letting the cell lose its identity, without le letting the organism lose its the functional of the tissues that are being re reprogrammed. So how does that work? How can you just turn it back a little bit and then stop the rejuvenation process and not let the cell lose its identity? Like how how, do, how, do, how would it biologically work? Right. Well, you, you need to activate the Yamanak genes somehow. You could do it endogenously. I mean, you could do activate endogenous genes that are already kind of present in, in each cell, the DNA for them. You, you could do like a CRISPR dead CRISPR activation with, uh, you know, epigenetic mechanisms. But, I mean, the paradigm that we're working on is we're just delivering Yamanaka genes under an induction um, uh, mechanism. Like, uh, basically, without a inductor, the genes that we deliver will, will not be expressed. They'll be silent. And this will, mm. preve this will prevent, basically, uh, these genes reprogramming tissues at will and, and, and having us you know, die of losing function or, or teratomas. So when we deliver those genes under the control of, for example, uh, tetracycline promoter, the only time the genes are activated is when we give the animal tetracycline or its analog, like doxycycline. And so when we stop giving you doxycycline, gene expression stops, and this is what, you know, uh, accomplishes the partial reprogramming of partial reprogramming. Uh, so basically, we only give you an inductor for, say, two days, and you'll only get two days of activity of Yamanaka genes in those tissues where we delivered the, the cassette with the Yamanaka factors. And yeah, so this is kind of the, in a nutshell, the approach that we're using. You can also try and do like mRNA uh, delivery, which mRNA deg degrades pretty quickly and, and you can get kind of a very short activation of the factors. But uh, from our perspective, we actually want a gene therapy that you can deliver to the cells of interest once and then you can do repeated rounds of reprogramming for, you know, how many rounds. I mean, because probably this will have to be uh, a repeated process. It's not like you can do like one or two rounds of reprogramming and you're forever young. Unfortunately, we're kind of always fighting an uphill battle with our, I think, pre-programmed process of aging and epigenetic changes that accompany it. And if we want to kind of stay in, in the same spot, you know, and, and we have to kind of be running on, on this treadmill or just to stay still. I think I'm butchering the Alice in Wonderland quote. But yeah, so basically, I think if we want to keep or freeze our epigenetic age, we'll have to do repeated rounds of partial reprogramming, which kind of get it lower. And then once we stop uh, reprogramming, uh, you know, the, our biological age will kind of re revert back to the original setting. And then we'd have to do another round of reprogramming and, and kind of keep playing this yo-yo game until we figure out how to, you know, epigenetically stop this process from the process of aging from happening in the first place. But until then, I think partial reprogramming is 
kind of the next best thing that we could hope for if we learn to uh, at least roll back our biological age to a, a lower level and the relaxation process or the kind of snapping back process happens back, ha happens over a longer period of time than you know the uh, interval between our reprogramming uh, uh, rounds. Mm -hmm. No, that that's super cool. So I'm curious in your experiments with animals, um, the activation molecule that you give doxycycline, for example, to activate the OSKM genes, um, is it is the the dosage or the amount the the way think about it is that different for different animals? I'm guessing it would have to be a little more personalized, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this was this would be uh, once we move from mice. I mean, we're we're only working with mice or in vitro cells. Uh, and once we move to other animals, it will have to be adjusted. And I mean, there, there are definitely uh, known ways to scale between species and then kind of take what you developed in mice and scale it up to, to humans, like the level, the concentration of the drug that you, you're going to use in humans. Uh, but uh, yeah, and it's it's very early on, like we actually, in, in, in our hopes for the human therapy, we hope to move away from doxycycline and use something completely inert, like not, not a uh, antibiotic. And, uh, but you know, this is kind of the, the next step. First, we have to make sure the system works and figure out like what exactly, what, what payload do we deliver? And then how we gonna activate the payload is gonna be, you know, doxycycline, inducible cassette or some other uh, inducible cassette, some other molecule that induces it, you know, but, but that's already kind of a you know, much, much more important concern to iron out. First, we have to make sure we, we know how to induce rejuvenation in a safe manner and repeatedly, and uh, we'll, we'll scale that from, from mice to humans. Uh, that's a very uh, kind of understandable drug development process, whereas at this point, we're still in a kind of drug discovery stage. We have to figure out how to exactly get the Yamanaka genes or other reprogramming genes to do what we really want to, to accomplish. Absolutely. So one of the risks you mentioned and which comes up a lot is the risk of cancer with epigenetic reprogramming. Uh, why, is, why is there a risk of cancer? What is happening? Sure. Uh, well, you're reprogramming cells, and cells lose I their identity, and if they become pluripotent, then they can then redifferentiate to any other can tissue that they want, and mm -hmm. this is how you get teratomas. Teratomas are essentially like masses of cells of different types. Well, they can form spontaneously, uh, or they can form after reprogramming, because basically if you induce cells to lose identity, then they're kind of out of control and can become cells of different type in a spot where they shouldn't be of, you know, different types. So, I don't know, liver cells become reprogrammed into, you know, really nasty things. Like, anyways, don't want to, you don't want to read about teratomas before that. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a pleasant sight. But uh, basically, the, the risk is from the cell losing its identity and kind of moving past the point of no return uh, on the pathway to de-differentiation, kind of, well, I guess this would be back up the Waddington landscape. 
And so that's why we need partially programming. We, we don't want the cell to stop the gene expression of the genes that are responsible for the cell maintaining its identity. Like for a fibroblast, if we reprogram the cell for too long, the kind of the gene clusters that are responsible for the cell remaining the fibroblast, they will get, you know, shut down, repressed, and the pluripotency genes will, will start, you know, their, their expression, and that cell kind of is, is lost to being a fibroblast. And from then on, you know, all bets are off what can happen to it, but nothing good. Um, so that's, yeah, that's where the risk of cancer comes from, and, and it's, yeah, why, you know, we need partial reprogramming. Uh, because, of course, you know, the, the, we're trying to kind of hack the magic of biology where it, what it's actually doing on the level of a single cell where, where it's fertilized and of course it doesn't care about anything else. It can completely change its identity and, and uh, uh, you know, reset its epigenetic landscape. We're trying to do that in the context of our already established organism and we have to be very careful to not lose cell identity because you know that's, that's how you get cancer. And I mean, cancer actually could be said to be rediscovering very same mechanisms of kind of embryogenesis and uh, self-renewal and proliferation that, you know, are usually kept under very tight control for, you know, I guess very similar reasons that, you know, you don't really want this kind of process to be happening in, in an established organism because that will lead to, to problems. So, but, and we're, we're working with this very powerful mechanism that, you know, nature has invented millions or maybe, yeah, well, probably, well, yeah, half a billion, at least, multicellular yeah. org organisms. Uh, uh, and we're, yeah, we're trying to kind of adapt it to, to multicellular environment where we want to try to reduce our biological age, but not kind of get this mechanism out of control too much because, you know, it's, it, it is very powerful and it, it can lead to cells rediscovering, you know, embryogenesis in situ, in place, and that's essentially what, what, what cancer is. So we have to be very careful. Yeah, right. You don't want to mess up the gene expression. So outside of what we've spoken in terms of partial reprogramming, the risks are just uh, open questions. Uh, are there any other really intriguing questions that you have that you want to see other people working on uh, on the field to you know accelerate in terms of like other paradigms of, just uh, other open questions on uh epigenetic reprogramming that you have uh well if uh, we're talking specifically epigenetic reprogramming uh, i mean there are definitely you know many open questions of one of which is, for example, which other factors can accomplish what Yamanaka factors accomplish and whether there's actually a subset of, of uh, other factors in the hierarchy. Because essentially, you know, Yamanaka factors are triggering a whole hierarchy of other transcription factors, other genes being triggered. And so is there, can we like find the cluster of a sub-hierarchy of maybe transcription factors or genes that are responsible just for the rejuvenation mm. without the loss of cell identity, without the de-differentiation. And, you know, for us, it's an open research project and we're looking for factors like that. And, you know, I'm sure other 
teams as well are, are doing the same thing and in, in the context of uh, partial reprogramming or epigenetic rejuvenation i think that's one of the open questions one of the at least you know for me one of the more interesting open questions because yeah essentially we want just rejuvenation without the risk of cancer the risk of de-differentiation and everything else so, i mean theoretically there sh well i don't want to say there should be there but there could be a sub program like a, a gene cluster that is only responsible for like the uh, fixing of various kind of molecular problems damage accumulation of misfolded proteins that occur in for example in, in all sites during the, li the lifetime that they spend in, in the mother for like 20 30 years and then once fertilization happens this gene program could be then triggered to essentially rejuvenate the cell and kind of get it, all of the damage that it could have accumulated over those 20-30 years to get it cleared and we, we do seem to have some evidence that this is what ha what happens after fertilization like there, there's a lot of research that looked into like misfolded proteins or other damage that accumulates in, in on fertilized cells that for example disappears after fertilization and mm -hmm. I think trying to actually kind of bring the two together this kind of observation that rejuvenation happens and the observation that it probably will happen somewhere under this hierarchy of, of genes that uh, get activated after fertilization and probably with the hierarchy of Yamanaka genes that they, they trigger somewhere uh, kind of trying to find that, that that's to me, one of the interesting kind of questions under the uh, epigenetic rejuvenation or reprogramming as well. Well, uh, on that point, I think when you, you were in fact just working with one of the Yamanaka factors, which was Octfo, uh, I'm not sure if that's still the case or uh, what. How how did the experiments go with just working with that with that factor? Yeah, we, unfortunately, it kind of didn't pan out to what we were hoping. You know, OCT4 by itself is, is not enough to give us rejuvenation or at least any meaningful rejuvenation. And uh, this was kind of also validated by the, the Calico preprint, where they looked at all combinations of Yamanaka factors and they saw that like each factor individually was not enough to meaningfully reduce biological age or methylation age of the cells. And you need at least two factors, and mm. uh, and probably like three is is uh, I think a meaningful increase over two factors in, in terms of rejuvenation. And like, but of course, the balance of uh, loss of cell identity versus rejuvenation is, is is another question. And the sweet spot is somewhere between two and three factors, at least according to to the Calico preprint. But uh, yeah, and the. That was just yeah one idea. Can we, out of the known Yamanaka factors, uh, can we figure out uh, one or, or yeah? Well, Calico was just then decided to try combinations of two and three, but I think at this point we're more interested in trying different factors. Just like uh, something, as I said, lower down on the hierarchy of what do Yamanaka factors trigger downstream other genes or other transcription factors that could be more relevant to rejuvenation and less relevant to losing cell identity and this is what kind of we're we're thinking or we're exploring right now 
hopefully, you know, we, we, we'll have some factors to test on that front. Amazing. Very exciting. All right. So moving on maybe a little bit to cryonics, because I know you're a big advocate. Um, again, you have a one-on-one on that for people who aren't familiar with cryonics at all or want to learn more about yeah, it. Really did your I, think, <laughs> I think well, actually one of the most um, intriguing bits of the piece for me was when you give out examples of uh, other animals who've survived in you know, below freezing temperatures, but also examples of humans and human babies who've been rejuvenated after being exposed to extremely cold temperatures. Um, I think it would be it would be nice if you can like maybe talk about some of those examples and explain why maybe cryonics could actually work. Right. Uh, well, yeah. Basically, I got kind of some historical examples of humans who, yeah, lived through even stoppage of the heart and brain activity, like some like because brain activity ceases. I think pretty early on. I think like below thirty-two degrees Celsius, I, I think you already start to lose, like your, your brain waves mm. are not detectable. And people were revived and, and were completely fine. And, and basically, that's one of the um, criti criticism of, of uh, some cry people uh, unfamiliar with cryonics give that, you know, all if uh, you, your brain kind of stops your brain activity, that you won't, it's kind of lost forever, even if you kind of revive try to revive the body afterwards, your your personality will be lost. But of course we got current examples from all those people who, you know, gotten cooled down to a much lower temperature than the brain activity and they were revived and were completely fine. Basically it's accidents, people who got, you know, frozen in uh, outside in the winter and or fell under ice, Ch children, yeah, fell under the ice and they were, when they were found, they were completely uh, you, know, you know, clinically dead, essentially, and then they were, they were revived and they were they were fine. And uh, yeah, and animals, of course, you know, some animals have adaptations, like some some frogs, uh, Sylvanica, I guess, uh, that they can survive the winter and they're partially frozen. But of course, they they can secrete their own geoprotectors. Uh, which unfortunately humans cannot, so we have to make do with some externally uh, uh, delivered cryoprotectants. And there, I mean, there's has been a lot of research into that, not just for cryonics, but just for organ preservation for transplantation purposes. And um, unfortunately, I don't know for some reason, cryonics just has had like a really bad rap in like normal scientific circles. So a lot of cryobiologists who had a, essentially, you know, a lot of expertise that could be transferable to cryonics, they almost didn't want to talk about this or endorse cryonics for the kind of fears of reprisals of, of their cryobiologist colleagues who uh, completely uh, you know, disavowed cryonics and, and said, you know, it, it has no place in, in kind of in science. Um, but yeah, sorry. Oh. If I, I guess yeah. I no, I'm curious. Wrong. Where does the bad rep come from? Yes, is well, it just seen as very futuristic or something, and not scientific? I I, I don't know. I mean, scientists um, have I think a, a bit of a kind of aversion to being overly optimistic, and <laughs> cryonics essentially kind of is dependent on being very optimistic about the future. 
because yeah. it's essentially kind of outsourcing all the problem solving to future generations and saying like, as long as we can kind of freeze ourselves or freeze our you know dead body in a decent enough state, then you know, hundred years, a thousand years from now, future generations will take care of everything. And I, I think a lot of scientists just have a very uncomfortable with that kind of thinking, especially if you're using that as, as a sort of like a marketing tool or, or selling it to, to people who are probably not able to make an informed decision, informed consent about what exactly they're signing up for. Like for cryonics, if you're you know, not familiar with biology or cryobiology and you know, cryonics is telling you that essentially you're going to be revived, you can't really assess the, the odds of that. that it, I mean, the probability is pretty low, but uh, of course it's, it's better than zero and essentially it's it's a it's a huge gamble but it's a gamble that i think it's a, a no-brainer that you if you're gambling against zero anything <laughs> that you, you probably you know you, you could get above zero is already is already a win but for scientists to have people kind of pay for the service of being frozen or vitrified cry preserved after their death for all the scientists that was a service they they couldn't endorse because they thought kind of the science is just not strong enough to to make a case to sell this to the general public um, but i think as long as you you know you you try to make a best effort in providing informed consent or information to a person to make an informed consent and essentially to present it as a, a gamble versus you know zero uh, uh, odds of uh, revival anything else provides you know and uh, if people are willing to pay for that willing to pay for that chance uh, I don't see any, any, any kind of problem with cryonics but uh, you know cryobiologists especially you know I'm not saying now but like 10 years ago 20 years ago cryobiologists were very uh, a lot of cryobiologists were just not friendly <laughs> to cryonics for some reason Hmm, I see. But yeah. I think I think it's actually changing, and there. I mean, there's more and more overlap in, as I said, interest in, in organ preservation for transplantation, and essentially, I mean, it's, it's the same same technology that cryonics is trying to apply to just whole body, whole or, body. or at least just the brain, if, if we're talking about neuropreservation. Mm. And uh, yeah, from a scientific standpoint, it, it's really one and the same. It's, it's when this kind of becomes uh, a, a service or a business that that's when, uh, you know, some scientists kind of stop endorsing the, 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 the business of cryonics. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say I have met more and more people who've signed up for it. I mean, mostly younger folks, but on the gamble that, you know, if it's like better than zero, sure, it's like the only thing I have. Why not? Let me just sign up for it. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah. I think, Tim Urban kind of uh, yeah. ma made kind of the best case. Too. Yeah, yeah, for, for that essentially that you know if you're in a plane that, that's falling out of the sky and someone gives you an umbrella, <laughs> or not an umbrella, but like a, a parachute <laughs> that you're not even sure is going to work, you're still going to try it just because right. you have nothing to lose. And I think we have to kind of approach crying the same way that it's it's essentially yes if we don't. Uh, uh, live long enough to have a meaningful rejuvenation while we're still alive and we kind of meet uh, with untimely death 
we at least Kranix provides some sort of chance for revival or rejuvenation way, way down the line, which, I mean, I don't think anybody can argue against science having, you know, making progress, great progress decades or hundreds of years from now that for, for, at this point might seem unfathomable to, to us because we just don't know, you know how deeply our understanding of biology will, will develop or increase. So it's, uh, I think, to sell ourselves short and say that all cryonics is never going to work, I think that is a mistake that basically is uh, just displaying a kind of short-sightedness of, of, the, of the future. Because I, I think if, I don't know, if, you, if you talk to someone a hundred years ago and told them that we're going to have gene therapy and, you know, have iPhones and, and everything else, or satellites, uh, they're, they're probably you know, not going to believe us and think we're crazy. And for, yeah, for us right now, saying that a hundred years from now, people will be able to, I don't know, just based on your brain to revive your personality and uh, have at least like a, a digital copy of you, essentially your personality, uh, just from your, your brain scan or econotome or, or something like that. I, I think, you know, uh, this is not out of the realm of possibility. Exactly. No, I'm, I mean, I'm super optimistic like you that science will keep making progress, especially biology. I mean, there have been so many questions already answered, so many open ones that people are making quite rapid progress at it. Um, so we don't have to talk about this much, but uh, I'm curious, like, how did you even come to think about uncovering uh, or talking about the lab leak theory of COVID? Because you were one of the first people who <laughs> brought it up, and then you came together and with a group of people to start Drastic Sciences. Um, like, what even got you interested in, in it? Wow, that's, that's quite a gear shift from, yeah, <laughs> rejuvenation into <laughs> the COVID origins. That was just uh, essentially uh, not even a hobby. I mean, it became a hobby, but initially it was just a curiosity. And I just, like, very early on, like early 2020, when people were dismissing the lab leak hypothesis of just crazy conspiracy, as was I initially, just because I was uninformed, I, and I was just kind of trusting the opinion of virologists or, or people who were representing kind of mainstream science and everybody said like, well, usually you trust the mainstream science over opinions of other people. And, you know, so I was essentially kind of relying on them saying that, no, it's, you know, lab leak is a crazy conspiracy theory. There's nothing to it. But at some point I just decided to like actually look a little deeper into the arguments of why it's a crazy conspiracy and why those scientists were so certain that it's it's not a lab leak and it's a completely natural virus. And once I, you know, gotten a little deeper into those arguments, I realized that those arguments are very unconvincing. Essentially, they were, you know, selling us the absence of evidence for the evidence of absence of, you know, there's being any kind of signs that this could have been uh, uh, if not engineered, just a lab leak from a laboratory that's been working on viruses just like this one for, for many, many years. And this was kind of the biggest, that was the biggest red flag, right? The pandemic occurring in the same location where this lab is. And if you're, you're talking about, you know, wet markets, China, there's, you know, thousands, hundreds, no, not hundreds, tens of thousands of wet markets in China 
the odds of this occurring into in in the in the city where the lab is and those bats are not usually found are very small so and kind of once you once once i started kind of digging into the uh, the facts and uh, the explanation that i think fit those facts the best was that it's a lab leak of course you know it's it's not certain we don't know for sure either way but to me the more parsimonious explanation kind of more logical explanation to explain all the observations was a lab leak but at the time nobody was well very few people were, were saying this and uh, i just kind of decided to as i write on many topics that interest me i decided to write a, a medium uh, post about this and just kind of outline all of my thinking and the evidence for why I thought Lablik is, is a more parsimonious hypothesis. And that kind of started this whole hobby that turned into a hobby of <laughs> investigating COVID origins and yet you know, drastic came together and I was one of the members of it and uh, gotten drastic found out uh, a lot more relevant novel information that wasn't available and was probably being obfuscated by some scientists out of the Institute of Virology. And that kind of also uh, gotten, I think, more and more, uh, at least for me, convincing, convincing evidence that lab leak is a better explanation. Because initially I started, you know, I was, I was nowhere near like 90% level certainty that I am today uh, initially, but the, the longer it went, the more uh, facts we uncovered about the behavior of, uh, for example, the Wuhan of Virology and some things they were not saying or even hinting at something different than what was the reality. Uh, they, I think the more likely the uh, possibility that it was a lab leak became for me. So, Exactly. And, uh, yeah, this is kind of how it, it all came to be. Yeah, no, I mean, it's cool that you actually investigated. I think it also partially asked you, it speaks to your mindset, right, of of just trying to crack this puzzle and not just take for granted what everyone or the mainstream is trying to tell you. And it's, I mean, similar to with your shift in view of aging as well, like why is aging uh, not more controllable? What can we do about it? So it, it, it's, it's brilliant, though. Yeah. I guess you could say there's a bit of a contrarian streak in, in me and, and many other people who, who do subscribe to. I guess both, uh, yeah, are longevity, uh, like radical life extension and investigating COVID origins because it definitely takes uh, a, a bit of a different mindset and I, I guess maybe, maybe a contrarian mindset. Hopefully not just for the sake of being a contrarian, but because you actually kind of, there's good rational foundation for for thinking that and not just kind of want it to to be different but who knows you know, we all have yeah. our biases so. right well I, I think it's also more a mindset of just trying to uncover the truth like what is the truth and give me rational arguments for it and like what are the explanations and having an open mind along the process um if you would just like round up questions and uh, back to longevity. Um, I think one thing is interesting that, you know, you worked in drug, drug discovery in Russia, Moscow for, for a bit before moving to Canada. Um, are there differences you've noted across uh, geographies or cultures in terms of just how pharma is conducted or maybe learnings we can take from different models? Right. So, well, I mean, I was, I lived in Canada before I went to Russia and I, 
kind of, I guess, moved back to Canada. Uh, in terms of, uh, well, there's definitely cultural differences with the countries, but in terms of drug development, it's, it's a very kind of structured process, and there's really, it's a very international process, and even in, 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 in Russia, there's a lot of expats from other countries who are working in, in, in this area, so I, I don't think, I mean, other than just kind of regulatory differences in kind of the Russian re regulator and Russian requirements for you know, having drugs registered, and say FDA or Health Canada or any other regulatory agency, uh, but those differences are essentially minor, and they have been becoming smaller and smaller because actually Russia, like over the kind of decade that I spent working in Russian drug development, the Russian laws, the Russian regulator tried to get them as close to international, like FDA or European laws of, of drug regulation. And, um, and yeah, they're trying to kind of harmonize this process as much as possible so that essentially a drug you developed in Russia could then be registered everywhere else uh, because essentially you're following the same procedures, the same requirements, and the data you generate it should be ideally very portable that, you know, if, if Russian health agency gave you a marketing authorization for the drug you developed there, you can then take this dossier and give it to FDA, and FDA should also hopefully reach the same conclusion. Uh, but, you know, there's always kind of little minor differences between the just the regulatory process. But overall, it's it's really, this, the, the, fundamentally, it's very similar. You know, you, you start out with the hypothesis, you do some in vitro stuff. If it works out, you go on to animals. And if, if it keeps working out, you keep your fingers crossed, you move to I don't know, bigger animals. And if everything is okay, safety is okay, there's no issues, you then go into humans. Then you really hold your breath because that's <laughs> where most of the drugs fail and all of your years and millions of dollars go by the wayside. And yeah, if, if you know, you're know you successful and the drug is safe and there's still efficacious in humans, then you, you, you register it and a whole new ballgame begins where you actually need to sell it. And this uh, kind of promotion of drugs is, is, is a very different beast and a very different skill set from actually like getting them to market. And it's very interesting because you know, it's all the same industry, but very, very different skill sets are required. And of course, once you kind of know both sides of, 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 the, of the game, you can then kind of maybe better understand how to do things early on in the drug development process, like which, which studies to, to conduct, which kind of endpoints to put in that might help you then later for promoting your drug maybe positioning it better against competitors or, or some other ways you can demonstrate why your drug is better and convince doctors, prescribers, or, patient, or patients why you know they should be taking your drug over something else. Of course, if it's a novel area where there's a, like a huge under clinical need, then, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, much, it's much easier. If your drug works, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's going to kind of sell itself. <laughs> but if you're in a crowded kind of space where there's a lot of things that already have been established, a new, a new drug in, in that area is, 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 you know, will take a little bit of uh, marketing uh, genius to, to be able to promote effectively. Yeah. Well, what about um, advocacy for longevity in Russia? I, I, I feel like I actually come across a decent number of Russians involved in, in this space. Yeah, it's actually quite large. Uh, surprisingly, there's a vibrant longevity scene in terms of advocacy and uh, just kind of events uh, 
uh, even social media, uh, there's, uh, I think, a lot of, uh, like, Russian-speaking, like, over former Soviet Union uh, mm -hmm. people who support longevity and uh, just participate in, in various events or fundraisers. Uh, so Last question. Um, what are you optimistic, excited about in the field of longevity or just, you know, anything else that we haven't touched upon that, that you want to talk about? Well, I'm probably biased, but I'm very optimistic about partial reprogramming and uh, just the interest that it's getting lately. I'm, I'm very optimistic that all of the money that is being poured into it will translate into meaningful discoveries and, and very quickly. And I'm, I, I guess, kind of coming back full circle from what we started, I think I'm seeing a lot more of a sense of urgency in investors, first of all, and that's a good thing because they motivate all the researchers and with the funding that is being uh, put in into this area, I think it's motivating a lot of young researchers who are uncertain which area to go into, to go into longevity in general and, you know, fully partially programming in particular. Because I, I think like fighting for talent is maybe an unappreciated uh, problem in, in biology that, you know, a lot of people who start out, like smart people coming out of their programs, when they're look, looking around what to do, they, they tend to gravitate to the areas that have a lot of funding, like cancer, for example, or Alzheimer's. But now that there's more and more funding into fundamental, uh, you know, mechanisms of aging, I think we might see a lot more young people, a lot, you know, a lot more talent coming into the space. And this is, you know, this is all kind of how science is, is, is being driven. You need a lot of people looking at it and investigating a lot of smart people <laughs> to figure out like all of the mysteries of aging. And uh, I, I think I'm very optimistic that all of this interest and not just partial reprogramming, I think longevity in general is getting a lot more interest and a lot more investment. But all of this will translate into some meaningful breakthroughs, you know, within the next five to ten years. So I'm pretty optimistic about that. Yeah, and I'm I'm totally with you there. So, well, thank you so much for your time, Yuri. It's been great talking to you today. Well, thank you. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm blown away by the pace of longevity research, and I want to keep bringing you great conversations with longevity scientists themselves. If you want to support all my effort and time that goes into the creation of this information to boost longevity, all resources can be found at livelongerworld.com. As you all know, aging is universal and we can unite in this fight and soon be healthy forever. I can't wait and see you next time.